What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are shaking off those CPI jitters. The Dow's up more than 300 points right now. That big inflation report comes before the bell tomorrow morning. Will it show inflation reaccelerating or will it give the Fed some breathing room? We'll get you set up for that and what it will mean for your portfolio. Plus, four unidentified objects shot down in the past nine days. We'll look at the companies involved in this unprecedented response, the defense spending and policy impact, and also the cybersecurity angle. And the health of housing. Is the spring selling season already off to a decent start? We'll look at the trends on the ground and the data pointing to yes. But first, let's take a look at those markets. As I mentioned, the Dow's up 300 points on the nose right now. The S&P's adding 40. And look at the NASDAQ, up almost 1.5% today, up 165. Again, this is more continuing the trend we've seen since Jan 1, with the NASDAQ leading the way. About a 12-13% gain already this year, and that's continuing today. Technology obviously leading the way. Microsoft, SolarEdge, and NVIDIA leading the gains. Microsoft adding 3.5% after its big week. NVIDIA adding 3% in SolarEdge for what it's worth, a 4% gainer as well. Energy in the red today, that's been a bit of a counter trend. Treasuries are on the move. Let's take a look at some of these yields here. The two-year highest level since late November of last year, 454. The 10-year, 372, the highest level in six weeks. All the more notable to see the NASDAQ doing what it's doing in, in the light of this. In light of this, bond yields have been making some big moves since that last Fed meeting. And of course, that strong jobs report. And traders say a hot CPI report tomorrow could spur some even bigger moves unless expectations are already too high. Let's get to Rick Santelli out in Chicago. Rick, how does this trade look to you today? You know, it certainly looks as though the markets are starting to get a little more friendly to the notion of tomorrow's inflation gauge, as you pointed out, in equities right now. Two-year, three-year, and five-year yields are the only yields, Kelly, that are up on the session. We've seen sevens, tens, twenties, and thirties ease back a bit. Let's start with that two-year note. As you pointed out, should it close at current levels, it will be the highest yield close since the 21st of November. But I do caution, even though that is correct, at its current level of 454, we're still nearly 20 basis below its high cycle yield close, which was a couple weeks before that at 472. If you look at a 10-year since the last CPI meeting, you can see that it went sideways until the big jobs report that changed everything and yes we hit 375 today as Kelly pointed out higher than yesterday's high yield but it has eased off a bit dollar index since the last January 12th release of CPI you can see how jobs report there also seems to have trumped the effects of that CPI pushing the dollar index higher twos to ten spread same thing since the last CPI report Moving much lower, been spending a lot of time in the low to mid-minus 80s, and we know that some of these levels we haven't seen in four decades. And finally, maybe the most important market that is weighing the difference between inflation and labor, and that's Fed Fund Futures. Currently, the fulcrum there remains at the September contract. It's on pace for 94.80 and a half close, which would be a new low close, implying yet more Fed. So, Kelly, Rick, back to just you. to be clear, then, if, the, if that contract, so 
In other words, expectations have never been higher for rate hikes, right? So does it feel like we can still be given a hawkish surprise here or not? It feels like maybe the only only surprises we can really get are on the downside. If the data comes in, I don't know, a little soft, a little muted or something. Listen, if the data for tomorrow and CPI comes in less than expectations, it gives us a real canary in the coal mine to weigh all the charts I've showed and try to benchmark if the Fed's nervousness about inflation versus the strong labor market is going to have any sway with the market. Because the market's ultimate belief is that they're not as entangled as the Fed believes, hmm. but the last jobs report really put the pressure on. We are going to have more on that, in fact, in just a few minutes. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. But let's get right to the increasing scrutiny on intrusions into U.S. airspace. In the past nine days, we've now downed four separate unidentified objects. And China's grown is growing tone is growing more defiant as it now claims we have sent balloons into their airspace, which U.S. officials deny. Defense stocks are rallying to multi-year highs today as a result. And it all comes as the president is preparing the largest Pentagon budget in history. Morgan Brennan is here with more on the companies likely to benefit from all of this. Roman Schweizer, Cowan's aerospace and defense policy analyst, has a look at the political fallout. And Tenable CEO Amit Yoran is here to weigh in on the security angle as we try to figure out what, if any, sensitive information has been compromised. Thank you all for being here. Morgan, let's start with you. What do we know? So uh, what do we know? Uh, in, in terms of these unidentified objects, um, there's still more details to, become, to come. We don't know all that much. I will say the iShares U.S. Aerospace and Defense ETF, which is the ITA, hitting a multi-year high today, as you just mentioned before, although some of the defense stocks are now under pressure. Investors digesting a rapid succession of shootdowns, uh, these unidentified objects. It was three in three days. Now you have this report that the Biden administration may propose the largest U.S. budget ever, defense budget ever, and that's after Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord told Politico he anticipates that the top line figure to be, quote, a bigger number than Congress had provided last year. Now, when Congress appropriated the fiscal 2023 budget in December, lawmakers authorized $858 billion. That was a nearly 10 percent top line increase. Hmm. It was $45 billion more than uh, the Biden administration had requested as well. And uh, and that is the key here, that it we're expecting this budget on March 9th um, and what is requested versus what actually makes it into uh, the final numbers that are appropriated by by lawmakers um, can be there can be a differential. Um, but it does speak to the fact that you have this heightened geopolitical situation. You have an administration that's looking to keep defense spending on the current trajectory. Right. And you have a GOP um, majority in the House that has said that they want to put the focus on spending cuts for the broader government uh, budget in general. So a lot of question marks here. More defense spending. It's going to be good for all but the defense players if we see it. But you know as well as anybody. I mean, the, the other way to look at the fact that stocks are at their highest level since 2020 is to say that defense stocks have yet to recover where they were before COVID. You know, they've kind of been lagging as a group. And every time we see these headlines, we see these stocks tend to rally. But the sustainability of that, you, I mean, I'm not saying there's a major bear case here. Obviously, spending is what it is. But you, you wonder a little bit about kind of jumping in on these headlines when, to your point, there's still some you know, bills that have to be run through Congress um, to see how much we actually are going to increase this number by. Well, and I think that's part of the takeaway for investors, specifically investors in the aerospace and defense sector, on the heels of the Chinese 
perspective spy balloon from eight, nine days ago that was shot down eight, nine days ago. And then, of course, these three unidentified objects that were clearly uh, noticed and shot down in the wake of that situation and the fact that Pentagon officials are on high alert now and, and combing through radar data in a much more aggressive way um, speaks to the booing of the booing of the defense yeah. budget. Um, the question is, how much higher can it go from here if it does, in fact, go higher um, versus maybe flatlining here versus when you're talking about software and the increasing role that some of these new technologies are going to play in future warfare uh, and future deterrence, um, whether you really do need to be spending that much more. This is all up for debate, yeah. not to mention the timeline to actually get a budget passed on time, which right. history would show is probably unlikely. Not expeditious. <laughs> we appreciate it. Let's turn to Washington now where my next guest says, like many others, he's a little surprised the White House and Defense Department haven't been more forthcoming with Congress and the public about what's taking place here. Let's bring in Roman Schweizer of Cowan now. Roman, it's good to see you and uh, very murky times. What do you make of it? Uh, hi, Kelly. Yeah, definitely uh, strange days indeed. And, uh, you know, just, just to point this out, uh, at the height of the Cold War, we didn't have uh, four unidentified objects uh, enter North American airspace, let alone shoot them down. Hmm. Uh, so this is a very peculiar uh, t uh, period in time. Uh, I'd also say that, you know, there has been uh, sort of radio silence from the administration about the salvage recovery uh, investigative efforts about the acknowledged or alleged uh, Chinese balloon. Uh, and then obviously you've got the uh, the three most recent uh, unidentified uh, objects. And, uh, you know, there's uh, certainly questions in Congress from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle uh, and then certainly the general public uh, as well. Uh, again, not to uh, don the tinfoil hat, but, uh, you know, the social media does tend to blow up with these things. And it really an administration needs to get out in front and uh, and assuage the fears of, uh, of the public and certainly communicate with Congress better. What's the most plausible explanation that you currently hear and what are the implications for investors? Well, look, these are uh, these may not all be the same thing. Uh, right. They could be different things. And I think that's perhaps one of the troubling aspects. Uh, it, it could range from uh, Chinese surveillance uh, to unidentified objects, uh, weather balloons or uh, corporate projects uh, in, in the atmosphere, uh, you know, or, or some of the more uh, Orwellian uh, uh, you know, descriptions. Uh, but I mean, even from a general aviation perspective, having things flying around, uh, you know, 20,000 to 40,000 uh, degree uh, uh, feet rather in altitude, uh, that's unsafe. And that's the administration are downing those things because it's uh, unsafe. So it really raises some questions about commercial air travel. I'd say we're just about ready to kick off that budget debate that you talked about uh, in Washington. And I would say that the group has underperformed, uh, you know, since uh, the GOP kind of came out with uh, wanting those, you know, what would be potentially 10 percent spending cuts. Uh, and, and really, when you look at the backlog in spending, uh, the two years ago, the budget was up 7 percent. Last year, up 10 percent, as Morgan mentioned. Uh, we, you know, uh, with our Cowan research, we estimate there's about $37 billion in funds for Ukraine that haven't put up, been put on contract for some of the large defense primes. So, they're, you know, they're, the pump is primed. Uh, and as soon as uh, we get into some of the budgetary details, uh, if any of that uh, overhang lifts, uh, certainly it's going to bode well for uh, for the companies. You, kind of same question. Do you worry about people who are buying the group now on these headlines primarily? Um, you know, you always think about when people bought all the oil and energy stocks last year at the peak. Anytime this, this stuff is gobbling up headlines, if anything, it's kind of sign of a top. Though the fact we've only just gotten back to kind of pre-COVID levels for this group as a whole. I mean, 
Give me a case for investors that you think there could be sort of sustained outperformance here and not just the usual kind of quiet, um, you know, performance that they've really been on display for lately. Sure. Well, well, one, I mean, I think most people would look at a multi-year scenario for the con uh, conflict in Ukraine. Uh, European defense spending is off the charts. Uh, Japan has doubled its defense budget. Uh, I talked about the growth in U.S. spending uh, and certainly the backlog in Ukraine. Uh, the other thing I think most managements have reported over the last several quarters that supply chain labor uh, uh, issues are, are sort of abating uh, and have been consecutively over the last couple of months. Uh, so the group is starting to operate better and deal with some of these things. Uh, and then you've got the idea of is 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 defense going to grow even modestly? Uh, again, Republicans on the Hill, uh, most of the, the national security minded ones have been pretty adamant about three to five percent real growth per year uh, to deal with geopolitical competitors like China, like Russia. Uh, Iran seems to be uh, pretty volatile these days, and uh, and you can never uh, discount what North Korea is going to do from one day to the next. Sure. Uh, so I, I do I do agree with your point, but uh, I do also think there's a pretty good long-term setup. So final question. Let me just circle back to your opening comment about the Cold War and how we didn't see this kind of intrusion into our airspace even then. Um, does that suggest that that this is not being handled with the level of seriousness you think it requires? No, I, I think it's being handled probably very seriously. Uh, it's just this is a this is a complex problem. Uh, you you know you have the criticism that the administration underreacted uh, in the first case of allowing the balloon to get all the way to the east coast, uh, and then you have a concern that there's overreaction. Uh, but again, there's a lot of things that go on in the world, uh, whether it's uh, in our atmosphere or in space. Uh, and uh, if there's not an eyeball or a camera on it, uh, it's not going to happen. And so we don't know what's going on or, or how serious this needs to be. Uh, you have to hope, obviously, national security officials are treating it as such. Um, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily disclosing that for, to the public for one reason or another. Uh, and I think that's one of the things, particularly that lawmakers are going to focus on over the next few weeks. Yeah, it'd be nice to get a little more clarity. Uh, Roman, thanks so much. We appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Great to see you. Thank you. Roman Schweizer. It's not just the traditional defense names, by the way, that have been rallying as these tensions rise. The cybersecurity stocks themselves are up about 20 percent in the past month. My next guest is CEO of Tenable and is here to help maybe shed some light on whether any sensitive information might have been breached. He's a meet your uh, CEO of Tenable. Thank you for coming in. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Listen, I mean, are you privy to any kind of special information about this situation? As, as a CEO of this leading cybersecurity company, what's going through your mind as you're watching all of these reports and trying yeah. to process it all? Sure. Well, there certainly are cybersecurity concerns. When you look at the equipment that may be found and when we get a final report on what equipment was uh, was being carried on board with these these uh, these objects, mm -hmm. we'll know a lot more about what type of communications may have been intercepted, what type of information may have been collected. And so certainly it is cause for concern. Right. So, I mean, there's all the problem is with premise, right? If the premise is this was definitely a spy balloon, then I could ask you a bunch of questions. If the premise is, nah, it just drifted off course or, hey, this has been happening for a while and really only wising up to it. They just point in such different areas. What would be your main questions if you had a chance to examine the, these objects? Yeah, well, I think the, the question is, you know, they were drifting off course and over very sensitive areas. So right. that seems, uh, seems highly unlikely. And the things we want to know about these objects are more about the communications equipment that was on them. What sorts of uh, sensing equipment, 
are they able to intercept? Uh, what are they able to intercept? What were the things of greatest interest? What were the signals of greatest interest to, uh, to the adversaries? You know, you know as well as anybody what information people can get um, through the internet, let's say, through hacking physical infrastructure and that sort of thing. Why, why a spy balloon? What, what can an aerial image or aerial surveillance offer that perhaps current firewalls or internet systems aren't allowing uh, someone to penetrate in order to get at uh, that kind of price information they might be looking for? If you have physical proximity, uh, you can do a lot of things that are, that are much easier to do than trying to do them at a distance. So you could mimic cell towers, you could mimic communications equipment, you can intercept communications and understand what content is going through. So any sensitive information, any information about operations, any information of, and, and telemetry about what's occurring in that area, how systems are configured, those would be the types of things which you could intercept and really understand with a spy balloon. So even in the digital age, there's still some value in kind of good old fashioned spying. Well, for sure there's value in good old fashioned spying, and perhaps even more so in the digital age, because of the amount of information, the richness, the robustness of the information that you can collect and you can use. So also implicit in all of this, as we figure out what was the deal with that balloon and the other objects and so forth, um, is the relationship between the U.S. and China as it relates to our companies doing business with them, are we gonna ban TikTok, all of these kinds of things. What's at stake for a business like yours in this relationship? Do you need this relationship to go well so that supply chains, for instance, aren't disrupted? Or do you need this relationship to turn more hawkish so that people feel an increased need to protect themselves against possible penetration? Well, uh, we are a software-based company, so we're not dependent upon the hardware or, or anything from China from a supply chain perspective. We believe fundamentally that every organization has the right to understand their cyber risk and to know what they can do to better protect themselves. And so to that end, to the extent that people feel threatened or feel like they need to increase their cybersecurity spending as a result of a spy balloon, then that's fine. But I think the fundamental premise, whether there's a spy balloon or not, is that the internet is a dangerous place and that organizations really need to understand, enterprises really need to understand what is at risk for them, and how they can better protect themselves. Final, I don't know if this is too much of a pivot, but in this sort of frenzy that we're having right now over new AI technologies, which are going to be deployed in enterprise with language capabilities to sort of scrape data and use it the way we're currently using the Internet, what does that mean for a firm like yours? How do you make sure that you protect that data, maybe protect it from getting disrupted in some way? I'm just curious uh, how big a deal you think this, this technology is. Well, AI holds great promise. At Tenable, we use artificial intelligence to help understand what pieces of software and where vulnerabilities might be exploited. It helps our researchers provide better products and better capabilities to our customers. I think when you talk about general purpose AIs being broadly available, I think we're in very dangerous territory. I think we're gonna see the doom and gloom and dark side of AI much sooner than people anticipated. Why? We don't have very good ethical models around how these technologies could and should be developed, and we have almost no control over them. So uh, if you look at uh, ChatGPT as an example, it's already been been uh, jailbroken, it's already outside the box. So it's accessing internet data. They have a jailbroken version called Do Anything Now, hmm. where they bypass the controls 
that we thought were in place. And so when you start collecting information, when you start tapping into the wealth of information on the internet, when you start tapping into social media, and you combine that with an advanced AI, really dangerous things can happen. Do you think they should be shut down? Well, I'm not going <laughs> to stand here and say we should shut uh, this particular AI down or that particular AI. I mean, I it's comical to even ask because we know we can't shut it down. But, I, but what you're saying suggests, and there are some who have criticized them for, for putting this out when they did and said, you know, you're polluting the current Internet if you want to just create better uh, models in the future. But also you're, you're not necessarily equipping people with the tools of how to handle this. Did they, did they jump the gun, in other words? AI holds great promise and will be able to do amazing things. And you're seeing students and you're seeing researchers and you're seeing even ordinary uh, consumers doing really interesting with, with, with chat TPT. So I don't want to stand here and say, oh, this is bad, this is evil, this is a terrible thing. But I do think... If we aren't careful, when you look at the lack of controls around some of these AIs and the lack of good ethical understanding on how to use them and how they should evolve, I think we're on very thin ice and, and the, a very dark side of AI uh, is probably going to come visit us soon. Right. And if, listen, you know, you, you're supposed to be one of these people. Like, oh, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be. <laughs> no, not so much. I mean, uh, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for your thoughts today. We appreciate it. Great being here. I meet Yoran with Tenable. Still ahead, could the spring selling season in this housing market actually surprise to the upside? We're going to look at how early demand is shaping up next. Plus, while we await tomorrow's CPI report, there's another under the radar market a trend that we haven't seen since 2016. We'll tell you what it is and the bearish signal it's flashing to start the year. And as we head to break, a quick check on markets, which are still seeing about a 300 point gain on the Dow, even as that 10 year is over at 372. Uh, biggest gainer, NASDAQ. Same story we've seen all year, up 1.4%. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a surprising twist. There is a decent amount of demand in the housing market as we get into the spring selling season. Diana Olick, in fact, is here with that story. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, we'd been hearing some buzz from agents that things were suddenly getting busy again. So we hit an open house over the weekend just across the D.C. line in Bethesda, Maryland. The three-bedroom, two-bath home was just listed at about a million dollars, which the agent called a first-time buyer property. Folks started arriving before the official start and just kept coming. The agent said she also has 40 appointments for private showings. Buyers are back. 
the agents are overwhelmed with phone calls. The sellers are just not ready. They think spring is later. Spring is right now. And mortgage applications to buy a home have been rising steadily. And Redfin reported that its demand index, which measures requests for house tours, just hit its highest level since September last week. I have a feeling like this kind of craziness about the market is not really going to get better in the near future. So I think there's no necessarily reason to wait. You just have to you just have to buy. And it's that mentality that has Evercore ISI analyst Stephen Kim upgrading Zillow Group to outperform today and calling a bottom to both existing home sales and prices in this quarter. Kelly? Wow. This kind of jives with what we've noticed around town as well. Diana, stick around. Our next guest is also seeing some demand signs of firmness. New Black Knight data shows a 32% jump in mortgage rate lock volumes last month. That snaps a nine-month streak of declines. Let's bring in, you know him, everybody, Andy Walden. He's here for more on this, Andy. (laughs) It's good to see you again. This sounds like it surprised you even. It, it did, right? I think there's a couple interesting storylines. I mean, there is a return in demand. There's no doubt about it. And if you look at our Optimal Blue data for January, you saw a bump. And then rates jumped again last week. And, and then you saw them step back in last week's data. So you are seeing this return in demand, but it feels very rate sensitive. And I think it'll be a bumpy road as, as we move throughout 2023. I just don't understand how the difference between, you know, 6.5 and 7% on a mortgage rate is really unlocking that much. It, it almost feels like people are insensitive, not hypersensitive to these rates. But you tell me clearly I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there still is sensitivity. And when you look at that that pricing, I think there are borrowers that are priced in, priced out by these marginal movements and in overall interest rates. And I think there's a, a psychological impact to some degree with rates rising and, and falling as well. Um, but certainly a bump in January. I think it, I think it expected or, or it uh, it went above what some of us were expecting in terms of overall volumes. The other thing, Diana, that I've heard from realtors is them saying, look, there's a decent amount of demand out there, but that people should list their homes early if they kind of want to capitalize on it. So are we pulling forward demand possibly? Could it could it almost seem like, hey, we're off to a good start, but then it doesn't go, it doesn't continue, uh, Diana? No, not from what I saw. This demand is not going away. There were hordes of people going into that house. The problem is there's just no supply on the market, and that's what the realtors are saying. They are begging people to list their homes. They're saying to people right now, look, spring started already. Get your home out if you want to sell it now. But interesting what you were talking about, mortgage rates. The folks I talked to did not seem so upset about the 6.5% rate. They said it's down from 75 in the fall. They were kind of used to the 6 now, believe it or not. And even some cash buyers I spoke to said there are so many other cash buyers on the market they're not feeling like they have any kind of advantage. No, I think that's absolutely true. And Andy, here's, I I was driving through town and there was, you know, a backup on a, on a road. There's not usually a backup on. I thought that's odd. It was kind of right. It was like one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Well, it was because there was an open house and there were cars backed up trying to get into the driveway. And I've seen this house, by the way, was on the market. In the past. It, is, it is not like the creme de la creme here. <laughs> and that just tells me, to Diana's point, that there's still demand. So, Andy, if, if this all bears out, what does it mean for demand for prices for for the market for the next couple of months, do you think? Well, I think the the interesting part, and Diana touched on this as well, is is the the supply component here, right? Because we are seeing a deficit of supply and it's actually gotten worse. We saw 25% fewer homes listed in January than we traditionally do. Hmm. And we saw our deficit of inventory go from 38 to 43%. And so part of it is you've got demand coming back and there are fewer homes for sale out there. And so when you when you look at what that potentially could mean for the spring buying season, it means you could see some hardening of those prices that had been falling in each of the last 
six months to, to round out 2022. Which would be crazy, which would be it feed into this narrative about the Fed that certain things aren't, aren't softening as much as they were supposed to. Um, very interesting. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you both. We really appreciate it today. Our Diana Olick and Andy Walden with Black Knight. Still ahead, the American labor market's got a pretty big problem whose solution might be the only thing that could stop the Fed from further rate hikes. We'll get a view from a top asset allocator ahead on the exchange. Don't go anywhere. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. A nice rally today for the NASDAQ. And take a look at shares of Toast. We've got a tale of two fintech firms this hour, by the way. Toast is up about 6% after KeyBank raised its price target to 30 from 26, reiterated its overweight. The stock has doubled off its recent low and is less than 20% away from its 52-week high. Again, Toast having a nice session. Meanwhile, PayPal, the worst performer in the NASDAQ, after BMO cut its price target to 108 from 117. And PayPal, by the way, is trading at 80, down two-thirds of 1% today. That firm still maintaining its outperform on the stock, but PayPal is also coming off its worst year as a public company. And while it's up 11% to start the year, the shares are still down 30% from their recent highs. So the headwinds remain as they uh, don't even get this one-day pop here. They're down two-thirds of 1%. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, There is no indication that terrorism was the motive when a U-Haul van struck eight people, critically injuring two of them in Brooklyn, New York this morning. That's what law enforcement officials are telling NBC News, although they say the investigation is ongoing. They say a man of Asian descent in his early 60s is in custody after police chased the van for several miles and then used a cruiser to pin it against a building. The driver is dead after colliding with a moving train in Texas this morning. At least a dozen rail cars derailed, but there was no one else hurt happily in that incident. Uh, And the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, says she will not appeal today's order by a judge releasing portions of a grand jury report on accusations of election interference by former President Donald Trump and some allies. That clears the way for the report's introduction and conclusion to be made public on Thursday. But any recommendations for or against indictments will remain sealed for now. Kelly, back to you. All right, I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thank you so much. Still ahead, the countdown to CPI is on, but my next guest says even if it helps the market rally, that rally could be short-lived. He'll explain why ahead. And during February, CNBC is celebrating black heritage through the stories of some of our teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is Vista Equity Partner CEO Robert Smith. Today, one of the primary barriers to access and opportunity in African-American communities is internet connectivity. Reliable, affordable, and fast internet access is something many of us take for granted. However, approximately 40% of black households don't have access to high-speed fixed broadband internet, and approximately 80% of our HBCUs exist in broadband deserts. As the pandemic has shown, the internet is no longer an accessory, it's a necessity. 
If we can provide access to digital infrastructure, we can create more on-ramps to opportunity and build towards a more equitable future. As investors look to history for indications about our next move, they're running into both extremely bullish and extremely bearish signals. Mike Santoli is here now with a look at which might have it wrong that are usually more reliable, Mike. Yeah, Kelly, I mean, both market bulls and economic pessimists, let's say, have these traditionally almost foolproof data points on their side. Now, when it comes to those people who are bullish on the stock market here, much different than people looking at the economic indicators. They're basically saying the inferred message of the market itself so far in January, four months off the low uh, from the bear market, uh, you have this series, uh, this cluster of breadth and momentum indicators that have triggered. They're very narrowly defined. They're very specific. It's purely technical gauges of supply and demand that have lined up in a way that's caused some people to say, look, this is the kind of thing that a year later, the market's always been higher. Or six months later, the market's always been higher. It's the way the market behaves coming out of a major downturn. You can't say why. Uh, maybe the market is sniffing out a more benign economic environment or we priced a lot in in last year's decline. So that's off to one side. On the other side, Kelly, as you very well know and have chronicled, there are all of these precursors of recession that are right in front of us on display. The deeply inverted Treasury yield curve from three months to 10 years, of course, the leading economic indicators getting down to a threshold, which is almost always uh, followed uh, by recession, as well as, you know, things like the Fed loan officer survey and all of these things that seem to very create this high level of confidence that a recession waits for us somewhere out there. I'll just put out there, the way to reconcile this, perhaps, is that we are in a strong patch for the economy. Maybe the no-landing scenario takes hold for a little while, and the stock market can seize upon that until, perhaps, either the Fed has to be more hawkish or the economy just simply does succumb. And, uh, and you can almost either both be right or both be wrong, depending on how you define it. Exactly. I totally agree. No, it's reassuring. Uh, Mike, stay right there, because no matter what the signals are indicating, my next guest is getting bearish and says not even a cooler than expected CPI report tomorrow can help the, this year's gains stick around. Let's welcome in Matt Maley, Managing Director at Miller Tabak. Matt, we haven't seen you in a little while. Welcome. And uh, yeah, I mean, wh what is it that has you convinced that this is a head fake? Well, it's the, I mean, if we do get that cooler uh, CPI number, the market will almost certainly bounce a little bit further, but I just don't know how much longer it can. And the biggest thing is, is because of valuations. Uh, you know, it's not just price earnings ratios, which can be, you know, people can play with the, the earnings, but uh, they can't play with their sales. You look at price, uh, price sales ratio, 2.3. I mean, that was what we saw at the top. Uh, of, of 2000 and much higher than what we saw at the top of 2007. Forget about what we see at bottoms. And, and so, you know, the thing is that every single every single bear market since World War II has seen a P/E ratio fall to at least 15 times earnings. And uh, so, I think that the you know the markets just can't stay at this kind of level. Um, uh, for an extended period of time without QE, without sort of, you know, massive levels of, of liquidity injections, which we're not going to get. I mean, you, you, I guess my point is that the big thing with when it comes down to the economy, the economy, even if we don't uh, fall into recession, when you got a market that's trading at 19 times earnings, it has to come back down to fairly value. Remember what happened in 2000 to 2003. We had one of the mildest recessions in history. 
And yet the stock market still got clobbered. Why? Because it started at an incredibly high valuation level, extremely high valuation, and it just takes much longer for it to get back down to fairly valued. We weren't as, high, uh, as highly valued or as extremely overvalued last time, uh, this time, but uh, I still think it has fairly to go. Mike Santoli, I hope that that period is indicative because, and, and some have said the reason why, you know, 07 was so much worse is because of leverage, because it went straight through the banking system. And maybe we can come out with something like the dot-com example where we lose $12 trillion of wealth and the economy barely makes a ripple because of it. Right. That absolutely would be a relatively constructive outcome, well, one that you might hope for if, in fact, you think we need to have some kind of downturn. I, I do go back to maybe relying on the idea of this is a relatively singular economic cycle. I'm not saying the rules don't apply. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying the sequencing seems to be off somehow, right? So everyone says the market's never bottomed before you got into a recession. That's true, but this market was down 25% when earnings were at their peak and you know the, the yield curve hadn't yet inverted, right? So you, you had some kind of leads and lags that are very hard to decipher. And I do agree, if you have a dismantling of the high value NASDAQ stocks and a trillion dollars goes out of crypto and all these other things uh, happen off to the side and it doesn't really impact the real economy because it was supported uh, by a pretty decent consumer balance sheets and all the rest of it, that's great. Maybe that's our way out. The other piece about valuations is it continues to be skewed by the very largest companies. The equal-weighted S&P 500 got down to about 13 times wow. earnings. Um, so 13, 14 uh, late last year. The mid-caps are still basically there. So my point is, I'm not trying to make excuses for it, but you could have two ways out. Either the average stock does better than the index or forward returns are just not that good. If and, October was the bottom, it just means you didn't flush it out very much. And Matt, that's what's fascinating. You know, I don't think Mike or I want to be the people who get up here and say this time's different. But it's like, it is, I mean, it is in some ways, in many obvious, obvious ways it is. So it, could any of these persuade you to feel less bearish if, uh, if this one is just going to be a, a little bit different than your typical game book? Well, it's, it's, it's still, it's, you know, as you say, it's never different this time. But there, you know, there's always a little different this time, of course. Uh, but I think the best, again, it goes back to that what happened in the late 1990s. We had this huge influx of liquidity. Back then, as, as I've said for many, many years, I know Art Cash has talked about this. Back then, that was kind of more behind the scenes to, to solve the problem with Y2K. And when Y2K was solved, they, they solved it well in, in the year 2000. The liquidity disappeared and the market went down. This time, it was a massive liquidity to save us from, from the, uh, the pandemic, which basically shut down the global economy. Now that that's being pulled away, it's going to take longer for it to, to unwind. And it's just like it did back then. Again, I'm not calling for the same kind of 50% decline in the S&P and 80% decline in the NASDAQ because it wasn't as overvalued. But I just think that you know, when you compare apples to apples, the liquidity situation is such that the only way we could stay at 19 times earnings if we have more, you know, a new QE program, more liquidity. Sure. I just don't see sure. that in the offing, even if uh, even if the Fed pauses at some point. It it, might, it, you know, it, soon. Right, Mike, we, ha we have to go. But I don't know if you saw what Dave Zervos was arguing this morning, that we actually would have maybe been in for a harder landing already if a lot of these losses weren't happening on basically the Fed's balance sheet. You know, that they've bought so much of the stuff that's underwater. They have the standing reverse repo facilities and all the rest of it. Are they basically undermining their own intentions to to get to yeah. slow the economy here because because of the bloated balance sheet, because of they're now like kind of the buyer of last resort in the whole system? 
Yeah, there's absolutely a level of uh, risk absorption that's happened. I, I definitely don't put everything on that uh, idea right there, but I, I wouldn't discount the, uh, the fact that, look, they were late in, uh, in, in doing anything on the balance sheet, and, and here we are only half a trillion down. Right, exactly. All right, we'll leave it there, guys. Thank you, Michael Santoli, Matt Maley. We appreciate your time. Still ahead, this rare earth stock up more than 32% this year. Could be pushed even higher on an announcement from a major automaker. We will reveal both of those names next. Welcome back. We've got a news alert on Ford's electric vehicle plans. Last check had the stock up just under 2%. Let's get to Phil LaBelle. Phil, what's happening? Kelly Ford confirming what started leaking out over the weekend that it will be partnering with the Chinese EV battery firm CATL to develop and open a battery plant in South Central Michigan. Total investment, $3.5 billion. Now, in order to make sure that the batteries coming out of this plant qualify for EV tax credits, remember, these plants can't be foreign-owned in order for the batteries to qualify. Here's the ownership structure. Ford will own and operate this EV battery plant. CATL will be licensing its technology to Ford. So complete ownership to Ford with CATL as the licensee opens in 2026, expected to create 2,500 jobs. Lots to discuss about this announcement and this agreement with CATL with Ford CEO Jim Farley. He's coming up next hour exclusively on Power Lunch. We'll talk to him about this investment and really the elephant that's in the room, Kelly, which is how confident can you be that a partnership with a Chinese EV battery firm is not going to face some resistance in Washington, given the environment that we're in right now. Exactly. We'll talk with Jim Farley coming up at 2.30. Looking forward to that, Phil. Thank you very much. Again, Ford shares just under 2% gain. Our Phil LeBeau will have more next hour. Still ahead, forget a four-day work week or unlimited vacation days as an incentive to get workers. A new KKR report says there's a systemic shift happening that's going to make the labor market here in the U.S. far more challenging for both employers and the Fed. We have that next. Before we had to break some headlines out of Washington, bring your attention to John Kirby of the National Security Council holding a news conference about the downing of that fourth high-altitude object over the weekend, saying the White House is still assessing what it was, but that the U.S. has determined China does have a high-altitude balloon program for intelligence gathering. Kirby went on to say the U.S. is not flying balloons or any other craft in Chinese airspace. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've seen this trend playing out over the last few months. Inflation is cooling, but prices remain high, and the jobs market is still really tight. And a new report from KKR suggests that'll continue to be the case, no matter what the Fed does, thanks to shifting structural factors. For more, let's bring in Henry McVeigh, Chief Investment Officer of Balance Sheet at KKR. It's good to see you again. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I wish we were, we were here to talk about better news. I mean, in some ways it is good news, but in yeah. other ways it's not. You know, and your point about how this is a structural problem means that should the Fed even be hiking rates to try to fix the labor market? I think there are a couple points here. One is the Fed uh, uses their interest rates as a blunt instrument to slow cyclical things like housing. But if you think back, if you think today the Fed has raised rates to almost 5% and the unemployment rate has gone down. It's crazy. <laughs> so what's happening there? So what we see in the U.S. is lower participation, a lot of people 55 and older exiting the workforce, um, and ultimately slower immigration. But it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. I mean, this is happening in Europe. China's population is contracting. In Japan, they've done a lot in terms of bringing females into the workforce. But overall, it's like we're hitting a wall a bit on the, the, the demographic story, and that's been exacerbated by COVID um, and what happened there. Kind of brought it forward, maybe. 
And if that's the case, you would never say, well, the central bank should try to fix that, right? I mean, all of this would argue, and the things you talk about, <laughs> so all of us from personal experience, the need for childcare, the need to help with um, care for older people, that right. people might be leaving the workforce to take care of their parents, for instance, those are big structural problems that require like a lot of private and public resources to fix. So it doesn't seem like to me that that would involve the central bank at all. Well, I think there's there's monetary policy. And ultimately, what that means is we're going to have a higher resting heart rate for where um, where short rates are. And I think, think? I think so, because I think they're going to have to even though they can slow the goods part of the economy, which is happening right now, it's harder to do services. The single biggest input in services is is labor. Mm-hmm. Second is, OK, how do you fix this problem? One is we've been investing around fertility clinics and Europe. Uh, second is, to your point, childcare. Childcare in the U.S. is four times more expensive than it is in any other part of the world. Wow. The third thing is you have to get more women working, and that ultimately gets back to childcare and how you, you run your home, and everybody's got a different different story there. And then right. the final thing is you need to get more people 55 and older staying in the workforce. And I'd say the U.S., when you look at the COVID policy, the U.S. was the one country that really said, okay, we're going to allow layoffs, but then we're going to go direct to the consumer with stimulus. Europe actually put that stimulus in the hands of the employers, and their their unemployment rate went up less than 100 basis points. Same thing in Japan. The U.S. unemployment rate went up up 900 basis points, and we're fighting to get people back in the workforce. So basically, we kind of compounded the error because we paid people, in essence, not to work, not intentionally, but in Europe and Japan, they paid the companies to keep workers. And and they kept people uh, associated with their companies. What do people want every time? They want to have a job. They want to work. We've been spending a lot of time at KKR around employee ownership. How do you get people engaged Hmm. so that they want to stay there? Uh, we're spending a lot of time also around automation. How can you take processes and make them more higher value added through technology? And right, because if you don't have enough workers at some point, you have to then add, yeah. add the bots, add AI, whatever. The, so are you investing for that? So again, to boil this down for investors, other than thinking through the fact that rates have to be higher for longer to keep in wage gains down, what are the kind of places where hey, these could be secular growth stories for the next 10, 15 years. I think there's a ton that's going to go around around uh, worker retraining. That's been a huge area of investment for KKR. Uh, fertility, we mentioned. Uh, software companies that make supply chains more efficient. Um, ultimately, the labor arbitrage between Asia and, and the U.S. has narrowed. So they're, as we bring things back to the United States, how do you invest around real estate? How do you invest around infrastructure? Sure. Ultimately, warehouses. That's been a big area of focus for us. And, but I think the most important thing we can do, we own over 200 companies globally, is what we're doing to engage our employees and letting them be owners in the business. What you see is the attrition goes down, satisfaction goes up, and you end up with a better outcome for everybody. So just to make sure everyone's following these dots, you guys as the investor in all these different companies all around the world have an interest in making sure you have good workforces in order to to get good performance, right? And the best way to do that is to try to make those workers basically shareholders of the company as well. Yeah. And, and if you're doing that at such a scale, I mean, does, is that really incentivize I mean, people enough, you think? I do. I think if you look at KKR, we have, um, uh, when you look at our 200 portfolio companies, we have over almost a million employees through our portfolio companies. Wow. So yeah, it's a major business. So how you treat them, how you work with them, ultimately leads to better outcomes. And if we're in the right verticals for growth, you can drive different outcomes. And so I think there's, a, there's definitely a caution in the piece that we put out, but there's also an optimistic story 
story, which is you need more worker retraining, you need more engagement, and ultimately you need to be in the verticals where people feel engaged to be back in the workforce. What if someone like me came and said, you know what, I think we're just a couple months away from a big downturn, Henry, and this labor market is going to look very different. I mean, is that still a possibility I, here? I think the data is bearing out, and you're seeing this in the government data, is that employers are not going to shed employees the way they did in the past. The time that it takes to get a worker, particularly in the services industry, is a lot longer. And so what you're seeing is less attrition. The, the workers may want to leave because they see they may want to leave because they see a better yeah. opportunity. <laughs> but I think go. that's going to be less of the case from, <laughs> from the employers. I now. hope you're. I mean, other than the implications for the Fed, I, I, I hope you're right. I mean, that would be a massive balance of power shift. Can you imagine? Well, you're seeing it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there, I think there's a secular change going on, and the piece is worth taking a look. So Absolutely. Thanks for spending the time with us. On. Thank you for coming, yeah. uh, Henry McVeigh. Good to see you again. Yeah. Really appreciate it yeah. with KKR, as I mentioned. Coming up on Power Lunch, the Super Bowl is over. That means we have a winner, by the way, in the CNBC stock draft. And drumroll, please, it's the Mountain Goats, which means Ryan Reynolds. No, that's CNBC's Ryan Reynolds. That's Tyler Matheson getting ready for next hour. But Ryan Reynolds himself will be there. We will give him that trophy. Uh, We are looking forward to that next hour. Stay with us here on the other side of this quick break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.